Thank you for being here today. It is good to praise the Lord. Good morning, Seth Shore. Glad that you've tuned in this morning. And uh, we are here because we need the Lord. Let the weak say I am strong. Let the poor say I am rich. Let the blind say I can see. It's because of what the Lord has done in me. And so we praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you, Duncan and team, for leading us this morning. Well, for endless days, we are going to sing the praise of the one who died for us and gave himself for us because he loved us. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we are in Colossians chapter 2. This morning, we are in our fifth message in the series, Jesus Overall, looking at the supremacy, the preeminence, the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, what a good God and Savior he is. And in these messages, we have been given a window into the heart of the Apostle Paul for this young and growing and thriving church. It's a church that Paul has never met, but we know that he loves the church. He knows he's praying for them. We know that he is fighting for them. And we have a front row seat into the spiritual health of this body, and we have a front row seat into the, the future of the church because he's calling them to, to walk forward and to, to progress in that. Well, we find ourselves in chapter 2 knowing that the Colossian church was in the middle of something challenging, and Paul wanted them to come through it stronger than ever. Doesn't that sound familiar, right? Being in the middle of something challenging, and it's like, are we going to make it? Are we not going to make it? Are we going to cave? Are we going to survive? Are we going to come through stronger than ever? We could probably think about that in our own situation right now. And that's exactly where the Apostle Paul was at. He was loving this church and wanting them to come through stronger than ever. But here, here's what we know, church. We belong to Jesus Christ. We know that we are in his hands, that we are in him, and uh, we know that we are going to come through. We know that we are going to make it through. We are going to have victory because ultimately in Christ, this is what he has given to us. This is what he has accomplished for us. And this is what we have when we are in Jesus Christ. So Paul was confident that the church was going to make it. And we are confident today that we're going to make it. There's times in our lives that we have all sorts of uncertainties. We wonder, hmm, how's this going to turn out? We have questions about, what do I do? What's the future going to look like? But we're confident because of what Jesus did then and because of what Jesus is doing now, we're confident of what our future is going to look like. Despite all of the, the forces of darkness that might be arrayed against the church in these days, we can absolutely be confident. Church, we have every reason. I want you to hear that. We have every reason to be confident today. Confident in our future, confident in our battles, and in our missions because, listen, we are confident in Christ. We're confident in Jesus Christ. So let's learn about this confidence today. Do you want more of that? Do you want to know that certainty of confidence? Well, let's hear the word of the Lord today. You ready? Let's open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, reading from verses 6 through 15. Colossians chapter 2, 6 through 15. Here now, the word of the Lord. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental, elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority." In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, 
in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me and we will just ask the Lord to help us. Father, we thank you for these truths written down from ages past for us. Truths of mystery revealed, truths of triumph over evil. Lord, truths that we need today. So come Holy Spirit, let the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. Lord, help me to speak as I should. Help us to hear as we need to. Come, Lord, and teach us now, we ask, for your glory. Reveal Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we saw in chapter 128 Paul's call, Paul's call for his own ministry and Paul's call to work in the church. Do you remember what that was? If you have your Bible open, you can see it. It was to present everyone mature in Christ. This is the goal, for us to reach maturity in Christ. Now, sometimes in taking care of the sheep, the shepherds not only help and encourage and provide, but they have to warn them about predators. They have to fight against the wolves. And this is what we see Paul doing in this section, which is actually going to even lead into next week's message. The Colossians were faced with theological dangers from false teachers who were bringing persuasive arguments that denigrated the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And Paul started to fight against that and warned the church about that. Now, every generation of Christians face such threats. It's nothing new. Heresies have been around since the beginning of the church, distracting, diverting attention from the truth of God and the person of Jesus Christ. Our best defense in the fight of this is to be thoroughly grounded in the basics of the faith and to understand the significance of what Christ has done for us in his death, in his resurrection, and also in, in what happened to us and what we understand to be true of us in our baptism. So church, we can be confident in the midst of this because of our identity in Christ. Because, listen, we are alive in him. We are in him. We are with him. And this is the central theme of this text. That phrase, in him or with him, appears ten times in the text. Paul is saying, you have this true about you because you are in Christ. This is true of Jesus and you are in him. Therefore, because you are in him, this is true of you. So all of the benefits, all of the blessings, all of the fullness that is true of Christ becomes ours because we are in him. This is our confidence in the fight, in the threat, in the midst of the heresy, in the midst of everything we go through. So no matter what your battles are today, we've all got battles, right? Our hope and our confidence in the battles of life, in the battles against our sin, is not in our ability. It's not in your ability to fight them, but it is in the power of Christ. Christ in us and Christ for us. And because of our confidence in Christ, Paul wants us to know three things. He wants us to do these three things as we press on to maturity. Back to chapter 128, to become mature in Christ. Three things that I want you to see today that are going to be the structure of our message this morning. Three things, they all begin with the letter C. So if you like alliteration, 
Here we go. C, continue, contend, and celebrate. Our first point is to continue. Second is contend. And the third is to celebrate. Continue, to contend, and to celebrate. Those three things will frame our time in Colossians chapter 2 this morning. Well, let's look at the first one. We see it in verses 6 and 7. Continue. Paul writes, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. These two verses are the focus of the entire letter. This, this is the theme statement that connects our faith, what we believe, to what we do. Because you believe this, do this. What we can understand from this is that us being in Christ, us being in relationship with Christ, results in the way that we live. We're, we're transformed in how we live because we are in Christ, in relationship with him. I could say it a different way. Our belief leads to behavior. And it brings together, Paul in these verses is bringing together the centrality of Christ, that he's fully God, that he's God's mystery, that he's God's wisdom, that he is the crucified and risen Savior who is Lord, bringing that together with the practical teaching and the implication that is upon it, that because of who he is and what he's done, this is the way that we should live. Right at the beginning of this verse, you see the word therefore. And when you see the word therefore, you should ask what? What is it? Therefore. There's a reason. And the word therefore indicates that there's a link to what Paul has just said in the previous section, verses 15 to 23, which is the preeminence of Christ. We saw that a few weeks ago. The mystery of Christ in you and the new standing that we have in God through Christ because of the reconciliating work that he has done on the cross. We can also understand the word therefore looking back just a few verses, five verses to chapter 2. Verses 1 to 5. And in those verses, we heard those last week, Paul was saying, church, I'm fighting for you. I'm instructing you. Remember, he said also, I'm warning you. And he said at the very end in verse 5, he says, I'm thrilled for you. I'm thrilled that you're standing strong. I'm thrilled that you are united in one solid front like soldiers strong on the battlefield. So that's the context when we hear the word, therefore. So he says, therefore, in light of all of this, in light of receiving Christ, you must walk in him. You must walk in him. As one translation of the Bible, the CSB says, he says, or that says, continue to walk in him. In other words, there's this, there's this movement in our lives that we need to continue. You have Christ, there's a battle going on, and you need to continue to walk in him. In other words, church, keep going, keep growing, keep pressing on to maturity and don't be diverted from Christ. Stay loyal to him. You know, remember where Paul is. He's in a prison a thousand miles away from his church and this is his letter warning them and he's urging them. He's, he's fighting for them to stay, saying, stay loyal to Christ. Don't be moved. Don't be moved away from your belief in Christ. Paul said this a few verses earlier. Look back in your Bibles to verse 23. Here's where he said it already. He said, he said, I want you to know if you indeed, or if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. In other words, continue on, keep going, keep being firm in your belief. Don't be swayed either way. Don't be pulled into the ditch. You got to keep going. So to walk 
We see in verse 6. So walk in him means to live. So we could say this, continue to live your lives in him. Continue to walk in him. Continue to live your lives in him. David Garland says, since they are bound to him as Lord, they are also bound to be obedient to him. Jesus requires that their conduct be consistent with his lordship. This means for us, as we put it together, that we should live our life in a way that is appropriate for one who claims Jesus as Lord. We should live our lives in a way that is appropriate for one who claims that Jesus is Lord. We saw that before as well, right? Fruit in keeping with your profession. There should be fruit in our lives. And isn't that what we already saw in chapter 1, verse 10? This is what Paul was praying for them. He was praying this. He said, walk, there's that word again, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So they were to walk in a way that was pleasing to the Lord. Continue to walk in this way. Continue to walk. Well, the question then that we need to ask ourselves is, how did they receive Christ? He said, therefore, as you receive Christ, Jesus the Lord. How did they receive Christ? How do we receive Christ into our lives? It's by repentance. It's by turning from sin. And it's by faith. It's turning to Christ. We receive Christ by repentance and faith. This is how they came into the relationship with Christ. And he's saying, continue to walk this way. Walk in a spirit of humility and repentance before the Lord and walk in faith. The Christian life, as we will see soon in chapter 3, has this, this rhythm about it. It is a continual turning from the past, repentance, and turning to in faith. It's a continual, we'll see, a, a putting off and a putting on. This walk of faith is the major theme that's going to continue right from where we are this morning all the way through to chapter 4, verse 6. These are the implications. This is the walk it out section. This is the put off, the put on, the turning from, and the turning to. And so these verses are looking back to what's been said, and they're looking forward to chapter 4 in all that Paul will say. So that's where we find ourselves rooted this morning. Not only did they receive Christ through repentance and by faith, but they also received the truth of the faith, right? They received the content, the understanding, the, the scriptures themselves. They received the truth passed down to them of Jesus, and they believed it. And so the call to continue to walk is in a spirit of humility, a spirit of repentance, to walk in faith, and to walk in the truths of faith in order that we live to please him. We do this, as I said earlier, by the strength that God provides by his power. So, growing in Christian maturity, that means that you're continuing in a forward path. Let me ask you this question. If in the Christian life, uh, we're not moving forward, what are we doing? What are we doing? It's not just that we're standing still and staying neutral, right? We have to keep growing because... If we're not moving forward and progressing, we are what? We're regressing. We're, we're slipping back. We're falling back. We coast. And God, let me just tell you, brothers and sisters, God has so much more for us, more of himself, more of his truth, more of what he wants to do in us and what he wants to do through us, more that he wants to reveal of the gospel. He's got more for us. And, and let us not be found guilty of becoming lazy and settling for status quo. Because the devil is right there to whisper those things into our ear. 
and our faith becomes perfunctory, it becomes a mere duty. And so we need to ask ourselves, what steps am I taking to actively continue in my walk, to continue to grow? To remain stable and steadfast, as we saw in 23, we need to keep going forward in the things that we should be doing. And the best defense against our spiritual enemies is a good offense. The best way to fight weeds, as I remind myself every spring, sometimes not so successfully, (laughs) is to grow a rich and thick lawn. Right? Keep the weeds out by having a good healthy lawn. Push back the false lies by pressing through and growing into what the truth of Christ is. In chapter 2, 7, Paul is going to give us right here four characteristics of what it means to walk in him. Um, Believers need to continue to live in him. He'll say to be built up in him, becoming strengthened in their faith. Uh, These are all in the passive voice, meaning that it's something that is done for us that we receive. Now, you don't see that in English, obviously. It's a nuance in Greek. The fourth one that we'll see, the abounding in thanksgiving, which is at the end of that list, is in the active voice. And that means it's something that we do in response to what's been done for us. So we are allowing and cooperating with God as he's working and in doing what he wants to do in us, rooting us and growing us and establishing us. And our response to that is that we overflow in thanksgiving. So let's look at those a little bit here. What the believers had been taught from Epaphras, we saw that in chapter 1, and have believed about Christ, what has it done? It's rooted them in the faith. Like a tree, they are deeply rooted in Christ. It's a past act, something that God did for them with present consequences. So we could say it like this. Uh, Once and for all, we have been rooted. That's what the grammar indicates. Once and for all, brothers and sisters, you have been rooted in Christ. That's encouraging, isn't it? You ever feel like your tree is kind of swaying a little bit? It's like, there's a big windstorm. I'm not sure if I'm going to get uprooted. And, you know, I... I've seen that on some of the walks I've done in the woods. It's like, that tree was definitely not rooted very deeply. It just kind of toppled over. It had no deep roots. But let me assure you that God in Christ has rooted you deeply in him, and you will not be moved. What that does for us is it gives us strength and stability for today and assurance for tomorrow. Then in Christ, we are not going to be uprooted. You ever feel that way? You ever feel like, I'm not sure I'm going to make it? Well, There's the assurance right there. There's the confidence in Christ. Because Christ is the soil that you're rooted in. And being in union with him, it means that we draw our life and our strength from him. That's back to what we heard at the beginning of this year. In our desire, our need to abide. So encouraging, so good. We sometimes sing that song, he will hold me fast. And I want to assure you today, if you feel like you're swaying and You're just not sure if you're going to make it. Christ will hold you fast. He holds you strong because you are rooted in his son, Jesus Christ. He's got a a firm grasp on your life, and Jesus is not going to let you go. You're rooted in him. We can continue this walk of faith secondly because introducing a, a new metaphor, not just being rooted, but like a building, we are being constructed. We are being built up by God, constructed in Christ. He is the master general contractor And we are always under construction, moving towards the completion of what it means to be perfect in Christ. We are going to continue to be built up by the hand of God. Isn't that great? He's building you up. I'm just thankful that the Lord keeps me alive, and I'm thankful that I get to keep walking, because I think, Lord, 
There's so much of this house that just needs so much work, right? So much renovation to be done, so much work that you still need to do in me. Thank you, Lord, that what you have started, you will finish. You can be confident in that, that we're being built up in him. The third characteristic, he says, is being established in the faith as you were taught. He says, the Lord is working to strengthen the Colossians' faith. Hmm. How does God do that? How does God strengthen your faith? Well, I'll tell you, one of the things he does is he brings difficulties and trials, right? We remember from John chapter 15 that one of the things he does is he prunes us. We do not like the process of being pruned. We do not like the process of being strengthened in our faith because it means typically that things are not going quite as nicely and as easily as as comfortable as we would have liked them. But we know that in the midst of those difficulties, and we're in a season right now where we have been enduring and we have been persevering, God's been helping us. And what's he doing? What's he doing? Well, he's strengthening our faith. He's making your faith strong in him. He's establishing you. He's growing your faith. And we continue to come back to his promises from, from the beginning that we have heard. And the word of God strengthens you and builds you up as you hold on to his promises. And you camp and you're rooted in those promises. So this is what we do to grow our faith as God's working. We, we invest time in it. And I just love that so many of you right now are either reading two or four chapters a day in the scriptures, right? We're reading in Job, we're reading in Mark, and we're reading just different places in the Bible, in Genesis, in Romans. And as you take that time to invest, here's what you're doing. As you sit under the teaching of God's word Sunday by Sunday and week by week and in your Bible studies, love that you're, you're doing that. You're being rooted, you're being built up, you're being established in the faith. And God is working in you to grow you so that you can continue to walk confidently against the forces that would sway you one way or another. The fourth characteristic, abounding in thankfulness, is different from the rest in that it is in the active voice. What that means is that this abundant thankfulness is our response to what God's doing. He's doing this in our lives, he's done that for us, and we just say, thank you, Lord. We sang that song earlier, Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for all that you've done. So God is doing this great stuff in us, and thanksgiving is the theme of our lives. Not only of our lives, but if you've studied Colossians, as many of you are doing, you'll see that thanksgiving is a major theme in the letter. He hits it five times in chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and verse 15 and 17. And in chapter 4, verse 2, this idea of thankfulness is just jumping off the pages here. So the Christian life is a continual walk of thankfulness to God. And, and I'm thinking as, as I was preparing the sermon, thinking maybe we just need to do a thankfulness checkup, right? Think back to this morning. Did you say, thank you, Lord, that I'm awake. Thank you, Lord, that I'm alive. Thank you, Lord, for a new day. If you look back at yesterday and check the transcript of your life and rewound the video and watched it, were there evidences of thanksgiving? Not just because the meal was good, although that's a, a blessing, but were there thanksgiving desires and responses flowing from your heart because you were reflecting on the goodness of God in Jesus Christ? Were you thankful for what God was doing? The Christian life is this continual walk of thankfulness. And we want to give Jesus both the quality and the quantity of gratitude and thanksgiving that he is so deserving of. He's so worthy to receive because we have every reason because of everything that he has done for us. That's true in our living. That's true in our giving. 
And I don't know about you, but I sure know that in my life there is, there's much room to grow in this area of praise and thanksgiving. Thankfulness, and here's a, just a, a check on your, your maturity in Christ. Thankfulness is a mark of spiritual maturity. So, it is an indicator of our, the health of our spiritual life. And uh, perhaps we say, Lord, would you produce more of this thankfulness in me? Would you, Lord, make this an indicator of maturity? Would you mature me and would you grow thankfulness in, in conjunction with, with a mature heart? This is what we need to do because our overflowing gratitude flows from God's infinitely abundant, generous goodness and generosity to us. You catching that? Let's be thankful people. Let's abound in it. And this gratitude we need to see here is vital to us in this continuing walk forward and this fighting against these lies. Why? Why is that? Because we will not be easily dissuaded by doubt if we are trusting in the Lord, if we are thankful. And secondly, we have no need to look for fulfillment. We have no need to look for other ideas, no matter how uh, smooth sounding they are or interesting or inviting they are, because we have everything that we need in Jesus Christ. We're thankful for all that we have in Christ, and we don't need to look left or right. As our gratitude grows, so does our stability. I'll say that again. As our gratitude grows, so does our stability. So, so sure, we have an ongoing walk, and here is this picture for us of spiritual progress. We're satisfied, we're confident in Christ, deeply rooted, built in Him, growing in Him, overflowing with thankfulness because of Him. Warren Wearsby summarizes what I've just been saying quite nicely, quite succinctly. He says this, a grounded, growing, grateful believer will not be led astray. A grounded, growing, grateful believer will not be let astray. So church, we are confident in Christ. Therefore, let's continue. Here's the second thing that Paul tells us in this text. Contend. Contend. Verses 9 and 10. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So here's a stern warning from Paul. He said, there's a real and present danger in your midst. Threat detected. Church, be on guard. Don't be led astray. Don't let anyone mislead you. He says, see to it. This is a danger that he also sounded in 2.4. He told them, he said, look at it with me. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. He's saying, there's trouble in your midst, so be careful. This warning is going to come again in chapter 4, verse 2. We talked about it in the fall in our prayer series where we said, stay alert, keep watchful, right? And that might make you think of another time in Peter and in James where the Bible says, stay alert, be careful, be watchful. The devil prowls around looking for someone to devour. Paul is telling the church that they need to be strong in Christ and to contend because their spiritual health hinges on their denial of false teaching and their embracing of sound doctrine. Embrace what is true and reject what is false. The section now that we're in provides this initial warning against the false teaching and gives us the basic reason for opposing it. It's because we have been brought into this relationship with Christ, we have everything we need, we are complete in Him. 
So, as I mentioned a minute ago, we don't need to look beyond Christ for the purpose of life. We don't need a new guru. We do not need a new way of living. We don't need a watered-down gospel. We don't need a different gospel. The gospel doesn't need additions. So be careful, because this is what the false teaching was doing, trying to undermine the work, the mediatorial work of Christ, the incarnation of Christ. And they were saying, he's not enough. He's not sufficient. He's not unique. He is simply one of many manifestations of God. You need some help. It's Jesus plus, Jesus plus this, Jesus plus that. The truth of Jesus for them was not enough. And against the claim that there were higher sources of wisdom offered by new and secret teaching, Paul declares that all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. And against this idea of the multitude of spiritual powers and authorities that were controlling the universe, Paul says Christ is the one who is over all. In chapter 1, he says it again here. He said there was these spiritual powers that served as necessary mediators between, between humanity and God. Some mix of syncretism and paganism. Sounds like mythology. Paul teaches that these spiritual powers have all been conquered in Christ. They don't deserve any worship, only him alone. It's likely that in the church, these false teachers were teaching uh, magic incantations and pagan rituals and Jewish teachings all together mixed in with the teachings of Christ. It was this hodgepodge mix of paganism. That's what cults do, right? They take some truth, they take some error, they mix it together, and they lead people astray. That's why Paul is fighting for this church He knew that it was a tragic thing for people who had received Christ, believed in Christ, to once again submit themselves to this thing that would take them away in error. Here's what heresy does, and we see it in the verse. See in that verse it says, don't let it take you captive. This word take you captive, it's a rare word in the Bible. It means to rob you or to kidnap you or to plunder you, right? Would you want someone to to break into your house and steal you away, to steal one of your kids away? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So Paul is warning you. He's saying, don't let anyone rob you. Don't let yourself be taken captive by deceptively smooth-sounding words or arguments or hollow philosophy because you are ignorant of God's word. Don't let that happen. Stay the course. What is Satan's key tactic right from the beginning? What's his key tactic? It's to deceive. John chapter 8, 44 says that Satan is a liar. It's who he is, it's what he does, it's what he has always done, and he always seeks to lead us astray with deceptive words. Therefore, we need to continue to exercise discernment and to walk in Christ so that we can avoid the perils of falling into the traps of the evil one. Some of you, as you look at that word philosophy in the text, think, is it bad that, you know, my nephew studies philosophy or that I have an undergrad in philosophy? No, it's not. Because philosophy just means the love of wisdom. It's not studying philosophy that Paul is getting at here, but it was the kind of philosophy, it was the philosophy that was prevalent in this church, that was this worldly, deceptive, hollow teaching. And where we know that the gospel is the word of truth, this philosophy was deception. And where we know that the truth of Christ liberates, this philosophy that was in the church enslaves. He's saying, don't go there, don't go there. And this philosophy that this church was being taught falls so far short of what we have in Christ. So here's another way of putting it. 
Why would we desire the cheap gumball machine plastic junk that you get when we have this pearl of greatest price, the great treasure of Jesus Christ? Why exchange the world philosophy for the truth in Christ? It reminds me of that old gospel song sung by George Beverly Shea. He says, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. Hand. And in that song it's saying, I'm going to exchange all of the junk of this world, all of the, the promises and the, the false and shiny trinkets of this world for Jesus Christ. Paul uses derogatory, insulting words to describe this philosophy. He says it's empty, it's deceptive. And this empty teaching fills people with more emptiness. Right? Isn't that true? When people chase after things that are empty, what does it do? It just it fills them with, with emptiness and regret and leads them into a dark hole that they can't get out of. But Paul is saying, you have so much more. You have so much more because Christ is full and he's filled you with his fullness. You have Christ himself, the fullness of God. And the word of God in fullness is in you. And you have full riches of complete understanding in Christ. This is, this is what he's saying. You don't have to worry about that stuff because you've already got it. You've already got fullness in Jesus Christ. This worldly teaching is based on human tradition and not on the word of God. This worldly teaching is based on rulers and powers and authorities that are demonic spirits of this world. And you don't have to go very far to find this stuff, do you? Turn on the TV, spend a little bit of time on the internet, you're going to have someone telling you how to live, how to get happy, how to get successful, how to get rich, how to really live. And all of these are just like a facade, right? A big fake front, just an empty shell in the back, it's all hollow, there's nothing there, the insides have been destroyed. That's what all of these worldly philosophies are that the church had to deal with and that we have to deal with today. False teaching promises much but gives nothing. It's worthless. It's not compatible with Jesus. It's not compatible with the gospel. And Paul says the gospel that we have is the greatest wisdom in the, in the world. And so we can look at the word of God through a whole number of lenses. We can look at this book and we can see in this book, rightly so, that it is the epic story of the reconciliation that God gives us with his son. We can look at this book and understand it as God's love letter of reconciling love. But let me say, we can also see in this book that it is a war manual from God. From start to finish, it is a war manual because we are at war, brothers and sisters. We are at war against false ideologies. We're at war against spiritual forces of darkness. And so Paul says, contend. We are in this spiritual battle of, of, of forces or with forces in the dark heavenly places, Ephesians 6 says, and we're not going to escape it. Spiritual warfare is part of our existence. The Bible tells us so. The Bible says that the devil is incessant, always prowling around, always trying to deceive us with these false ideas and these empty delusions. And I've seen it and so have you that people are easily led astray. In Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, Paul told the Ephesian elders, he told the church leaders to watch out, to be on guard, because these wolves, these demonic, these satanically inspired people would come in in their midst and he would try to lead people astray and take, take people with them. Things haven't changed. This side of eternity, we will not be free from the devil and his schemes. He's constantly fighting against us and against the supremacy of Christ. We've seen it, we feel it, and we know it to be true. 
But we don't stop. We don't give up. Just as the devil and his agents are incessant, so are we. So we are continually alert, continually unceasing in our ministry of the word, continue, continuing to declare the supremacy of Christ, to con- continuing to cherish and live in the fullness of Jesus Christ as we battle against the forces of darkness. And so we stand firm in Christ. We stand in unity. We stand in the fellowship in the body of Christ and in the promises of encouragement of God's word who tells us that there is victory in him who has already overcome the world and the flesh and the devil. So brothers and sisters, let me say this. Why would we follow empty, hollow things when we already have everything that we need in Jesus Christ? Cherish what you have in him. Do not turn away from these life-giving, flowing fountains of goodness for some dirty, polluted puddle that the enemy puts in front of you. Look at verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. These verses look back to 119, talking about Christ's fullness, and he says, Colossians, you don't need to be ensnared by this, because this is who Jesus is. He's God in the flesh. The sum total of all that God is, is in Christ, and you have him. Those who have received him have received the fullness of salvation from him. You have everything that you need in Jesus Christ. We don't need to look to another source. We don't need to fear lesser powers. We don't need to fear being impoverished, somehow missing out on some secret. Because Jesus is the fullness of God and we belong to him. The Lord is our shepherd and in him we have everything we need. So church, we're confident in Christ. First, because we will continue on with his strength. And second, because we will contend. Here's the final thing that Paul wants to tell us in the remaining section. To contend is number two. Number three is to celebrate. You see that in verses 11 to 15. He says, finally, celebrate. Celebrate. Have you ever been to an art gallery? Somewhere along the way, a picture arrived on the back of a truck, wrapped up, protected, perhaps in a case. It was unwrapped. It was handled. It was positioned carefully on a wall, curated. Lights just shone on it perfectly to bring out the nuances of this picture. And this section of scripture is like that. It's like a gallery of God's grace. These treasures, these beautiful works of art, unpacked, unwrapped, lit up, lit up for all the beauty to see. And that's what this treasury of God's grace is displayed for us in these verses. It's a display of what God has done for us. So good. Paul Tripp says about this text, he says this, if you are God's child, you too are a a gallery of God's glorious grace. He says, the walls of your heart have been festooned, that is, decorated with the gorgeous artwork of redemption, wisdom for foolishness of sin, power for the weakness of sin, forgiveness for the guilt of sin, and deliverance from the bondage of sin. Isn't that true? Your life is like an art gallery. There's, there's this beauty hanging, and we're going to see in this, this section the beautiful things that God lays out for us that are true gifts of grace for us. Paul, go, Paul Tripp goes on to say that sometimes when the lights are out in the gallery, the gallery of our hearts and our minds, the stunning beauty of God's grace isn't seen. In other words, we forget when the darkness comes on, when the darkness comes in, uh, we don't see the grace. We forget it. We fail to understand it. We fail to celebrate it. So what we want to do right now is to flick on the switch, have the light shine brightly on these things, and to celebrate 
the gallery of God's grace that is hanging in your heart and life to celebrate what is ours in Christ. In the brief time that's left, I want to quickly work through these verses in more of a summary form. What we see here in verse 11, he said, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Through death, the Colossians, excuse me, through his death, the Colossians have received this divine circumcision in Christ. This is metaphoric for the spiritual work that Christ has done in us, whereby we we no longer need to live in the power of the flesh and by its influence, but we live by the power of Jesus. What was the back the backstory to this? Well, the false teachers were demanding that these Gentile Christians in the church in Colossae should be circumcised. Basically, they were saying, you don't have this physical mark in your body, so you're not in. You're not included with God's people. You don't cut it. Paul is saying no. He's saying no. He's saying you have Christ, so you're in. The Christian is not subject in any way to the Old Testament legal system. And nor, even if we could try, would it merit us because we can't measure up. As one commentator said, Gentiles don't need and must not tour through Judaism to get to Christ. The way to Christ is not through circumcision because it's not the outward mark of circumcision that we need. It's the inward work of the heart, the circumcision of the heart that we need that only Christ can accomplish for us. It's not necessary for us to submit to this outward circumcision because Our hearts have already been changed by Jesus. Paul is saying here, you've got this. And so we celebrate the grace that gives us new hearts. We celebrate the fact that we have new power to live a new life. That's the first thing hanging on the wall. New life, new power. Our hearts have been circumcised by Christ. The second thing is baptism. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This is the second metaphor that Paul draws from Christ's work on the cross. It's about baptism. And it is this reenactment of Christ's death and resurrection that we understand that represents for us our whole experience of conversion. What is baptism? Many of you watching today will have been baptized. You know that we go into the waters, we're under the waters, and we come up. We're cleansed, we're washed, we're new. And what we're doing in that in that enactment of baptism is is we're identifying with Christ. Just as Christ died, went into the ground, and rose again into newness of life, so we go into into the grave. We are dead to sin. We are washed. We're cleansed. And we come up into newness of life, new and free in Jesus Christ, whole to live for him. That's what it signifies, this death to sin, this surrender to God, and raised to new life as new creations in Jesus Christ hanging on the the wall of your life, this this gallery of grace, wonderful truth of who you are. And so for us, resurrection power is now for us a reality, and it's our future reality. And so we celebrate the grace that has cleansed our hearts, and we celebrate the grace that's raised us up to live a new life. And we celebrate that the same God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will raise us up with him to be with us, to uh, be with him in glory forever in these glorified, new, resurrected bodies. That's hanging on the, the wall of your life, this truth that's true for you. And in the final verses, Paul's celebrating three more things that decisively Christ has accomplished that are ours because of union with him. He says in verse 13, that we were dead in our sins, but God has granted forgiveness and made us alive in him. Without Christ, we were spiritually dead, blind, 
unable to, to change anything, with no hope of being able to change our hearts. But in Christ, there's forgiveness of sins. Where there was death, now there's life. We are alive in Jesus Christ. Did you know that? You're alive forevermore because of what Christ has done. The second thing you see in verse 14, that this written code that was written against us, our sin, it was an IOU of uh, an unpayable debt that was against us. It was this, this ledger written against us, all of our sins, all things that, that we had accomplished in the flesh, things that we couldn't pay. He nailed to the cross, canceling them. See that in verse 14. What we understand here is that God nailed this list of incriminating sins of our unpaid debt to the cross. This IOU that we couldn't pay, this penalty for our sin, the death that we owed, was paid for fully and acted in Christ's death. Nailed to the cross. We celebrate that we are, are free. This is gone. And so what it tells us is there's freedom from legalistic righteousness. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to try we don't have to try to earn God's love because our slate has been wiped clean. It's been dealt with and the devil has no grounds to accuse us. He, he can't point to you and say, you're guilty of this. I'm going to condemn you for that. And you say, there's no condemnation for us in Christ. He said, what about your sin? And we say, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. I don't owe anything to the flesh anymore. The work is done. The third thing is this, verse 15, having disarmed the rulers and authorities, he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, verse 15. This is the third and final thing. Paul concludes with this picture of a triumphal procession. So when there would be a military battle, the general would come back into the city um, just with the enemies defeated in tow and chained, enslaved, defeated. And this is the picture of Christ. Christ has triumphed over his enemies. He's marching in. The forces of darkness chained, defeated, enslaved. Christ declaring his triumph over them and their complete defeat in him. We celebrate today this grace that is ours in Christ, that the enemy has been defeated. The demonic powers have been defeated. And we have freedom from fear. We have freedom from the influence of these demonic spiritual dark forces in our lives. We don't need to be afraid of these principalities and powers that Paul says are fighting against us. For Jesus has conquered it all. Romans chapter 8, in him we are more than conquerors. Christ on the cross triumphed over everything that stands against us. These are the glories of the gospel. This is what is hanging up on the wall, the beauty of the glories of Jesus Christ. And this is what we celebrate. This is the message that is central to the Christian faith. And we've heard it, and we need to repeat it. And we need to remind ourselves again, even as we come to the Lord's Supper again and again and again, rehearsing, remembering, relishing, cherishing, cherishing what Jesus has done for us. Well, as this truth today that we've heard to continue on, to contend and to celebrate is ingrained in our hearts and our minds, it is going to do this. It's going to fuel our love for Christ. It's going to fuel our, our love and it, it's going to fuel our thanksgiving it's going to inspire a walk of faith, and it's going to keep us from error. It's going to keep us from being led astray by these false teachers that are whispering and trying to draw us away. Brothers and sisters, today we have every reason to be confident in Christ. So continue to walk in Him. Contend against false ideologies, false doctrine, false teaching, and celebrate. Celebrate the triumph of Jesus Christ who he is in you and what he gives in you 
The powers of darkness have been defeated. You have new life in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your blood has washed away our sin. Jesus, thank you. Lord, thank you that this debt has been paid, this record against us has been nailed to the cross. Thank you, Lord, that hell and sin and death have been defeated, that the power of sin has been broken, the penalty of sin has been erased, and that, Lord, one day we are going to be in your presence free from the presence of sin, freed from the power of sin, fully like you in our resurrected and glorious bodies. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for this. God, would you help us today to have this this confidence rising up in us, all because of Jesus. To you, Lord Jesus Christ, be the glory. In you we are alive and free. Jesus paid it all. Lord, all we have is in you. And all God's people said, amen.